everyone. Welcome back to the Monarch Impact. My name is Megan Conahan, and I'm a member of the class of 2023. And I'm Erin Remal, member of the class of 2012 and Gwyneth's Director of Alumni Engagement. Today, we are so excited to have with us Catherine Seibel, a member of the class of 2011. Catherine is currently a candidate for a Master of Science in Community Planning at Columbia University and majored in International and Environmental Studies at American University. While at university, she worked on the divestment from fossil fuels, a student campaign, and helped her campus to reach carbon neutrality. Catherine was an intern at the Environmental Protection Agency, which focused on translating air quality, waste, and environmental science research topics that impacted the Latinx community. She is passionate about what a sustainable world and society should look like in terms of justice and environmental awareness. And these worldviews were greatly shaped by her Peruvian American upbringing. Welcome, Catherine. So we just kind of wanted to start with, since this is the Monarch Impact, what made you choose Gwynedd for high school? So fun fact is, I am one of three girls and my two oldest sisters actually went to the Mount. And what's interesting is that I was convinced I was going to go to the Mount for quite a while until I like went there and then I visited Gwynedd and I just said, you know what, this isn't it, Gwynedd is it. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> oh, definitely. Like just listening to their stories about high school, I'm like, oh my God, we had way more fun at Gwynedd. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, th so that's how I chose Gwyneth. It was visiting and I just felt it in my, in my heart, honestly. I know it sounds cliche, but it just felt like the right place to be. It seemed like an environment that was approachable, I think maybe the right word. And people were just very nice and friendly. And obviously, you know, took, we take academics seriously, but also know how to have fun and um, balance, I guess. So that's how I chose Gwynedd. Yeah, it's definitely a feeling. Um, do you have any, do you have any like impactful experiences that you really remember from your time here? Uh, oh, definitely. I think what I was think, uh, what I was remembering the other day was when it was the 150th, I believe, uh, anniversary of the Mercy Schools, right? Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, it was the sesquicentennial in uh, 2011. That's it. <laughs> that was the celebration. And I remember we performed at the Kimmel Center, and I will never forget that for the rest of my life. That was exhilarating. And getting to experience that with my classmates who we've been in, you know, Glee Club and Corral for years, it was awesome. And I was also thinking as well, just very randomly about, so for context, my master's thesis supervisor, he's a, he's from Los Angeles, but he's Salvadorian American. So he's Latino and he's so accomplished and he's interesting. And I was just thinking like, when was the last time I've had a Latino professor? And it was at Gwynedd, it was Miss Lair Fortino. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I don't think I was officially in Spanish club, but I remember like <laughs> during homeroom, she would just whisper to me in Spanish, like, hey, you know, like you have to come to Spanish club, like you need to be there. <laughs> and I was like, fine, Miss Lair, fine. And so I would go and I remember she would, we'd watch really awesome movies and we'd listen to music videos and she'd print out the lyrics to practice um, conjugation. 
So I guess to answer your question, she really just made me appreciate and learn about my culture. And I think that is very impactful and I carry with it everywhere I go. So also my conjugations are fire in Spanish because of those worksheets we had to do. I'm just comes so quickly. So thank you, Miss Fortina, for sure. <laughs> she was the sweetest too. I remember her. I did. I took French, but I remember her and she was so nice. She was so eccentric and I just love her energy. You know, I really miss Absolutely. her. Fantastic. Yeah. Do you feel like obviously she had a big, big effect on you? Do you feel like there's anything else specifically that Gwen had, had that really changed you as a person or helped you find your kind of confidence as a leader? That's such a great question. I, I feel like Gwen had really um, helped me cultivate my soft skills, if that makes sense. Like I felt that it began at Gwen. Um, for instance, I remember Sister Susan was in charge of Environmental Club at the time, and Mrs. Saunders, she picked up that I really liked environmentalism, and I remember during biology class, she'd be like, Catherine, I think you'll like this topic. We're talking about ecology. Um, so I remember that they would just point it out, and I also think that Mr. Hopkins, for instance, we would have after-school conversations, and he let me choose this book called Count of Monte Cristo and just let me go off basically on my reflection about it. And so I think from doing that assignment amongst others um, and like balancing, you know, work, school, all of that, all the after school activities, it just made me have a drive that I can't explain. I just have it. And, you know, just from doing all these assignments, it helped me toward the path of engaging in like social justice projects. For instance, like even years after college, um, Mr. Hopkins, he actually donated for me to go to San Francisco and work with LGBT homelessness youth population and learning about, you know, the different terminologies and scopes and how to engage and like what's the best way to be an ally. And those are really important skills to have that aren't necessarily on a resume, but like they're still important when you're, especially when you're in community planning and you're a leader and you need to just, you know, go one-to-one -one with people. And, and so um, I would say that Gwen had helped me in that sense. And it also made me realize what direction or type of college was right for me as well. So I think it started at Gwen for sure. So you mentioned uh, also that you were involved in some after school things. And for the listeners, um, I actually was had the privilege of performing and doing all our music stuff with Catherine. We were um, in the musicals together. We were in Glee Club, Chorale, all of it. Um, and we had such a blast. We were actually just before we started recording, talking about a time that Catherine played Gaston when we were in eighth grade um, in Beauty and the Beast. Uh, she really, she looked great in the muscle suit. Um, but uh, so what were your favorite um, activities here at Gwinnett and, and how did that kind of shape you as a person? You know, I really went for the personalities. How, how can you deny an extra hour of the day with Dr. Myers? You don't. Absolutely. Like she's the absolute best. Um, or Barbara Baldwin. It's always a story. You know, <laughs> great, strong women role models to have at such a young age. Um, but on a serious note, apart from that, I feel that 
you know, doing the shows and having to, you know, remember your lines or just have a moment where you, you have a solo and you're, and you're there and there's just so much attention. It's so scary, but I think that being forced to do that, I don't know if you feel this, Erin, but I just learned to put my anxiety away for, you know, an hour and just like really let go and not think about what I'm doing, just really focus on the moment and focus on what I'm trying to say or what I'm trying to present to an audience. And I think that that specific skill of engagement and public speaking, if you will, it, I use it all the time during presentations, absolutely, in my job for sure. And even in a leadership role where you are acting you're not acting like I am being genuine, of course, but like you are, like you have to put yourself in a position where you have to just forget about yourself and think about others. And um, I think that's very important. And again, it's a soft skill. So that's where I take from the after school activities we did. It's, it's uh, embracing who you are and turning who you are into someone else or into a solo. I have no idea, but <laughs> what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I'm involved in theater too. And I definitely feel like it helps you kind of hone in on like that ability to just kind of almost fake it till you make it and just like figure out how to have the confidence when you might not feel that way. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> theater kids get it. Yeah. <laughs> So you talked about how you really had an interest in environment and like the environment and you had kind of discovered that at Gwened. Where did you see yourself going when you were in high school? Like what career and what were your goals? And then how much has that changed now or does it line up? It does and it doesn't. I think when I was at Gwened, there was so much I didn't know about environmental studies. And honestly, it's changed so much since I was 16 years old. It's an exciting time to be in the environmental field. There are so many different directions you can go with it. So that was not the case when I was younger. However, that being said, my I feel that when I was in high school, I think my original ambitions to was to work a little more internationally, which I have done, but I feel from the perspective in which that I've worked, there's so, I've, I just feel like there's so much to do within the US and where we live and um, that, for, I mean, for instance, I noticed that Gwened's theme this year is, you know, I feel, not that I don't ever wanna work international, but I think I, I just really want to, there's so much to be done where we live in the United States and especially with the critical concern of water, right? Um, there is definitely indeed a huge issue with water accessibility, especially when you speak with Peace Corps volunteers like myself and other ones who I've spoken to who've served in Africa and all different sorts of countries, what it was like to get water because there was just no infrastructure there and especially with desertification and climate change. And so absolutely, I'm not saying, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that there are water accessibility issues here in the United States, you know, like Flint, Michigan, for instance. Um, I mean, it is predominantly black and brown, low-income communities that have their water supply switch from, I think it was 
Detroit to um, the Flint River to save costs. And however, that has led to an environmental justice issue where you see like inadequate in tre treatment of water and like not the testing, which has led to lead contamination, which from the lead contamination leads to the drinking water supplies. And so, um, and then even worse, I think actually the Flint River, it's a this waste disposal site on top of it. So it's just like, why is this, a, like, why is this happening? Like, just why? Just so many questions of why and what are we doing about it? Or, I mean, I mean, if we're speaking about water, also where we live, you know, it's, I think right now they're voting in the different boroughs to, to sell off the borough sewer systems or to do a system of privatization so that owners or private companies, I believe it's Aqua, um, is going to buy the municipal water and the wastewater sewer system and be in control of the pricing. And so like Norristown, for instance, I just read like the municipal council voted to sell the sewage system for $82 million to Aqua or Awa. So why, first of all, why are they not communicating this directly to residents, number one? And number two, especially to families, given COVID and the pandemic and like what that's done to us, what happens to the families that can't afford higher rates for water? So I think what I'm trying to say here is that People need to be aware and they need to mobilize because this is really problematic. You know, water is a human right, is a human right, period. It should not be like these types of conversations. This should not be the case where you have to be concerned. Am I going to get cancer from drinking out of my faucet? You know, this is unacceptable. So I guess, um, yeah, so I think my goals have they've kind of changed. I'll say they've been revised. They haven't entirely changed, but I think the scope has changed, if you will, or the, the scalability. So, oh, just hit my copy book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like, as you learn more, you learn more about what you can do and what's happening. So like with your education, you learn more about what you want to do and that's why they've changed. Definitely. I think you learn more and more how localized these concerns are. And then once you realize how localized they are, you, you're, you know, get into it, you know, get really engaged, get angry, get passionate and, you know, bring your friends along, you know? I think that's all very important in order, not just for water, but like, you know, like any issue at all, so. Right. Yeah, we think of it as like it happens somewhere else, but it doesn't. It happens everywhere. It happens you know, everywhere. everywhere absolutely. It. So it's always good to have the global, the big picture. I'm not saying like don't engage internationally, but you know, just well, I guess is what I'm trying to say at different levels. So yeah. And so, um, so you know, you kind of built your foundation at Gwynedd, right? And and started you know caring about what was going on around the world and, and locally about um, environmentalism, sustainability, all of that. Um, but then what did you decide to then study in college and how did that kind of lead into what you're doing today? That's a great question. So I think, right. So I studied at American University. Absolutely love it. If any of you want to go there, let's talk. I will convince you. <laughs> it's the best place ever um and I wanted to go to AU because it was so active the campus life in terms of you know I was obviously drawn to the environmental justice um campaigns that were going on there were so many ones at the same time it was crazy 
And so I'm trying to think how to present the story, but essentially I had a federal work study uh, program where by luck, almost fate, if you will, there was a Green Eagle resident um, intern position that was open the year I entered into American in 2011. And so I immediately applied. And when I was a Green Eagle, uh, my job was basically to, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. I just had to talk to residents and get to know them and encourage them to live more sustainably because AU had this goal of reaching carbon neutrality by 2020. And they believed that the best way to do that was through educating college age students because then they're more likely to quote, live sustainably. So for instance, um, what we, so we engaged in topics of transportation, energy, food, waste, there's probably more, there was a lot, Let, let's say those topics. And each month we would put on like an event with the residence halls. And so for example, we had a s'mores cookout where we told people like, okay, let's turn off the lights for a few hours and come out and eat s'mores for energy month. I don't remember what that month was, but you know, some, some said month. And then the next, let's say the next month it was related to waste. How can we, you know, lessen our waste generation? And so what we did was since I remember since it was October, we did a Halloween costume swap where you know how you go to parties or events and you get these random costumes that you're definitely not going to wear again. So people would bring these said random items, leave them on the table. And then at a certain time, people can pick up those items. So instead of throwing it in the trash was the idea. Um, so I, I loved it. I did that for two years. And as a result, I interacted with a bunch of professors and one of them was Dr. Che. And I, he asked me like, oh, like, what are you studying? I told him international studies. And he said, well, I noticed that you're very engaged with the Green Eagle program. Why don't you come to the environmental science? And I said, is that possible? You know, 18 year old me. <laughs> and he said, yeah, just do a double major. So that's what I did. I double majored and I'm glad I had that conversation because I didn't know it was possible. And also I couldn't really, to be honest, make up my mind. Like I enjoyed environmental studies. It's wait, international studies, excuse me. I did. I love language learning. I love learning about other cultures and history and politics, but I felt that, you know, for instance, we had a class called global sustainability and public health. So when I would be, when I was in that class, I loved it. And we would talk about really great topics, like international topics, such as water, for instance. But I just wasn't satisfied in the sense that I wanted to learn more. Like, why is there water scarcity issues? Like, what is that process like? You know, what, why, right? So, so that's where I think the environmental studies kind of complemented that because they had more focused courses, let's say, about the science behind it and what that looks like on the other side. So yeah, so it was kind of like an inverse relationship. And yeah, that's that's what led me to my college studies. So foundation was definitely Gwynedd, but then um, once I got into the Green Eagle program and got into community development, um, that's what led me to my studies and made me, made me mark, very uniquely marketable, I think as well, so yeah. Now we'll take a break to hear some updates about what's going on at Gwynedd. Hello, 
My name is Colleen Corris Connor, and I am a 1986 graduate and currently the Director of Annual Giving at Gwinnett. I'm here today with our podcast crew to talk about One Week for GMA. One Week for GMA will take place from Monday, April 25th through Friday, April 29th. One Week for GMA is a week-long fundraising opportunity designed to bring our entire community, alumni, current and past parents, faculty and staff, students, and friends together to unlock up to $100,000 in challenge gifts to support the Mercy Fund. The Mercy Fund is Gwinnett's annual fund that benefits every student and every aspect of the Gwinnett Mercy education and experience and makes things possible beyond the cost of tuition. Gifts of all sizes are appreciated and collectively make a big difference. So we are asking you to give what you can to help us meet this year's fundraising goals. Be sure to keep an eye out on our social media channels for updates on our donor challenges. And I thank you in advance for your participation. And we're back. Yeah, and about those two majors, what was your favorite things about each major? And then how does that link to what you do today in your job? Like what's your daily routine and that kind of stuff? I guess you want to look in the city of Philadelphia water quality issues by neighborhood. Then you would take a base map of the city of Philadelphia and you would put data sets of the census. You know, what is what are people's incomes? Where do they live by neighborhood? What are their ages? And then you would overlay again with, you know, water quality data. And from this product, you would see distributions or um, varieties of color where darker color could represent areas with lower quality, lower um, in income or older folks. And then the lighter areas of the city would be people with a higher income and have great well, water quality. So I really enjoyed that class um, and it satisfied both international studies and environmental science. And also it's, it's a great skill to have for the workplace. I think a lot of my jobs, for instance, when I got to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency as a reservist, and when I was deployed out to Puerto Rico and Oregon after the wildfires, um, they asked me to do mapping. They asked me to look for data sets and clean them. And how do you tell a story of um, who is the most affected, who, what areas of Oregon should get not should get funding, like they're obviously gonna get funding, but like where do they really need that money to recover? So I think that was definitely an example of a course that I took in undergrad that led me to my day-to-day -day job. Um, yeah, that was one of them. Not that I, not that the other courses didn't, you know, I don't use them, but I think from courses, cause I feel like international studies was a little more social science heavy I mean, there was language learning too, and that I use every day, of course, as well. But um, I think maybe the research methods that they taught us at the school also I apply to my day-to-day -day job. Um, yeah, I have to think about this more. This is a really good question, <laughs> but yeah. And you, you did talk about how you had to pick certain courses to graduate on time. Were there any courses that you wanted to take or like regret that you couldn't take because you also wanted to graduate? Oh, Lord, what a great question. I haven't thought about this in a very long time. Um, 
probably I would have liked to have taken more courses relate there were so many interesting courses at the school of international service in the environmental studies program it's an incredible program and they had a course on I don't remember the exact title to be honest but it looked at food insecurity and what that means internationally as well as on a national level the professor was absolutely incredible. Um, so that one I definitely regret taking because all of my friends took it and I was so jealous. You know, I'm like, oh, you guys are being so cool. Uh, <laughs> and then I guess any of the Latin American courses were also incredible, but I just, I couldn't. My, I really had to follow a strict double major um, coursework. Environmental science, was there a course that I missed out on? Mm, I feel like organic chemistry is quite a bonding experience but (laughs) (laughs) oh man (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I remember one of my courses though I have to share this because I think it's so funny they it was called ecological applications and uh, Dr. Kehoe Kim was his name we had to practice tagging and just how that goes wrong with animals and in the real life when you're doing research and I remember one of our we practiced with freshmen and so we actually had to go around to like the economics courses or the political at any course that had like a hundred people there and we had to make an announcement like hey where are these pins with this blue square on your jacket where we can see you obviously no one did it but you know we had to (laughs) sit around and tag freshmen <laughs> how like how many how many times we saw that square that's awesome it was amazing so it was funny <laughs> I, that was hilarious but yeah that was a, also a course I'm glad I ended up taking just for those kinds of memories absolutely that's great so um you also mentioned so environmental justice like you you were looking into that and what exactly is environmental justice and what do you, how does that apply to what you do today Yeah so that's a very good question because I think there is a lot of conversation as to what that means Yes, there's a lot of conversation as to what environmental justice is. And the way I look at it, I think of it in a very, I see it in a restorative type of way. Like it should have been there in the first place. And, but it isn't because of how the systems were created. So I see it as a way of being, of almost like, I wonder if retribution or restorative may be a better word or almost transformational because I think with the environmental justice issues, when you look at it like a community planner, why are certain, when you look at the history of redlining, I mean, um, certain like black and Latino communities, they were only allowed to live in parts of the city that um, that were next to hazardous sites. Why? Like, why? And like, as a result today, there are more issues and rates of cancer and asthma and elderly folks and children. That should not be the case. And so I see environmental justice as redesigning the city when you're doing zoning and you're deciding who lives where. Don't do that. (laughs) That should not be the case. Um, And so I think where 
I started with environmental justice. I feel, I mean, there's an aspect of how I grew up in Lansdale. Like I grew up with um, chickens and fruit trees. So I was very connected to the physical environment, but I feel through the Proving American organization I, I grew up in, I was kind of learning what it means to be Peruvian and be Andean. And to be honest, like the Andean culture has been sustainable or environmentally just for centuries, you know? And for instance, they have this saying called um, criar y diarse criar, which means to nurture and let oneself be nurtured. And so it's very, it's a harmonious relationship. And that's how I think of environmental justice because it's between, it's the relationship between the environment and the people. And, and in improving culture, it's like agriculture. It's, it's a way of continuing life in such a beautiful way. It's, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that environmental justice, it's very interconnected. And in the case of, um, in the Quechua culture, it's a reciprocal relationship between humans and the environment. And um, for instance, I think probably the most famous one that everyone knows is Pachamama, Mother Earth, right? Um, we have, come on, right? So I think also I just learn more and more every day. So I see as my identity being connected with environmental justice. For instance, I just learned about the system called, um, in Quechua it's called Waru Waru, which was developed in the Andes. And the idea is to cultivate land that is poor soil or it's lower and subject to uh, drought and frost in certain times of the year. And so Wadu Wadus are exca excavated soil that leaves shallow canals. And so the idea is to fill it with water and create a microclimate. And by doing that, you're protecting against frost that provides also water during drought. And so in, in essence, it, it um, increases soil productivity. And so in, in any case, I think like understanding my heritage is environmental justice for me personally. It's different for everyone, of course, but I feel like because my culture has been doing it for centuries and I think you see in mitigation, climate change mitigation, a lot of these techniques are developed from indigenous cultures because they work with the environment. And so, um, yeah, so in any case, like with that being said, when I see rivers that are so polluted from, plastic bags or even I guess in the extreme cases of Peru like um, from mining and extractive industries that they're contaminating the water with absolutely no repercussions it it breaks my heart and I think it's just that like feeling I have that makes me want to keep engaging with environmental justice and I guess bringing that like Incan spirituality if you will as a millennial um, <laughs> and so to like the environmental justices that we see here, because there's so many. Um, so in any case, like I, I really wanted to learn. And I think that the academic social science realm through community planning was just, it was just the right fit for me because I just didn't see research cutting it. You know, I, I, I you know, I obviously have a lot of respect for scientists and researchers. They do important work, but for me, I just felt like better with people, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That was a really and long answer to your question. No, it's it's fabulous that you get to infuse some of your culture and your ancestral kind of practices into what you're doing today. And, you know, 
Um, and definitely a part of the world, America, that definitely needs some some serious work in that in that respect. And um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's because like when you're of the background, that's not you know um, when you're like indigenous or any other, you are so predispositioned to not think about it unfortunately. And so it takes a lot of deconstruction of like stereotypes that you grew up with and preconceived notions that I have to go out of my way to understand my culture. And so I kind of just see it as like, I, I can't explain. It's just uh, like a self-discovery, I guess. And I, I think that there are so many ways that it applies to environmental justice conversations that I think are beautiful, to be honest. So, yeah. I love it. Um, and we know that you interned with the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work with them and, and what you did there? Of course. I was in the Environmental Protection Agency for, I think, around 10 months, I believe. Uh, I was full-time during the summer, and I was part-time during school. It was such a cool experience. I nerded out so much. My coworkers were awesome. You know, I was in the office of research and development and basically we had to communicate in plain language what their research is and how it, you know, affects our day-to-day -day life. And so I dealt with a variety of projects. I, um, it was a lot of editing. So I had to edit, um, this database of scientific tools and classify how they would be helpful to planners, risk, assess risk assessors, um, different types of careers that need um, a tool to determine toxicology reports, for instance, or maybe there's a planner in Montgomery County that needs a stormwater calculator. So I had to help with organizing um, that database. So that, believe it or not, took a lot of time. And I think I wrote articles and about air pollution. And I had to translate into Spanish because I think a lot of the research affected Latinos living in urban centers. And beyond um, translating into Spanish, there has to be an audio format available as well for literacy issues. And um, also, I think I had a very, another random project was um, looking at profiling. Um, we were doing a calendar or social media strategy to highlight scientists who are Asian American, who were um, African American, Latin American, what have you. So I had to organize that. And what else? I feel like I was just supporting. Oh, I remember. Then I had to help with. I think freedom of information requests about different research going on as well. So it was a lot of research basically and supporting staff with whatever they needed. Yeah, they were a fun group. That's great. And you were also in the Peace Corps, right? So what made you decide to uh, work with the Peace Corps and what was that experience like? So, okay, I actually, there was a teacher at Gwenin named Mrs. Beckman who, she served in Slovakia or Slovenia. Oh, this is gonna kill me if I can't remember, but it was in that part of the world. And uh, so, yeah, I had that conversation with her at 15 years old, basically, you know, why did you do it? What did you do? Like, what was that like? Um, 
Yeah. And she was, she just told me about her stories there, how she had to learn Slovak, how she taught English, how she met her husband, like all these really cool stories. And, you know, I, I can't say I was like a thousand percent convinced, like I'm going to do this, but it was definitely an opening conversation that I kept in the back of my head. And so again, I think once I was at Green Eagle, I had the experience of um, engaging with college age students on sustainability topics that are really important, such as um, recycling and composting, for instance. And also at, at American, we used to do community service like community gardens and all over Washington DC. And we also planted trees for urban reforestation efforts. And so by the time I started my application, that was when it switched that you can pick where you wanted to serve which I was like so thrown off by. Um, I guess, I, I think I actually put in my application that I would serve anywhere as long as it's, you know, environment or agriculture. So yeah, so then by the time I took off for Paraguay in September 22nd, 2015, I got there, I had this, <laughs> I had this naive expectation of so many things, but one of them was that I was gonna speak Spanish. I did not speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> at all like <laughs> I had to I was learning the local indigenous language called Guarani and I was working with a women's group and so on um, different projects but mostly related to gardening and permaculture and just you know they had a lot of questions about what's going on with their plants and I would do my best to communicate what's going on <laughs> and then I was teaching with uh, an engineer natural resource conservation, which is a really fancy way of saying that we had a school garden. And I was in charge of, um, of supervising the girls. You know, I think the guy professor just like didn't know what to do. So he was like, no, just, just go with go with Kat. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do with you. And so, <laughs> so we had a lot of fun. I remember we did a worm composting bin and to like throw in organic waste materials and they got they all the, the little boys would take the worms and like scare them and they <laughs> them. They got super, so into it and until a pig ate the worm composting that was devastating however it ended up them coming to my house where I was living all the time and so we would just hang out and so I guess um I guess you know, it started at Gwynedd hearing about Mrs. Beckman's engagement with Peace Corps, what her experience was like. And I noticed that a lot of her memories weren't necessarily of the work she was doing. It was about the type of connections that she made. And also, I mean, yeah, my studies, of course, like that's what I took with me to Paraguay. But at the same time, I think so much came beyond that, um, if that makes sense. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot to talk Absolutely. about. We have a garden here now, too. We just started a hydroponic garden, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were harvesting lettuce last week. Awesome. That's yeah. great. I tried doing that with my students. It was an epic fail, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to come see the one here. <laughs> I definitely want to see it. That'll be the first thing I, I look for. Um, I remember I... I had them go recycle like the two liter soda bottles. And then we just had a little activity of just cutting it out and putting it into a hydroponic type of vertical gardening system. And yeah, that's, that's great. I love it. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So were there any challenges in life that you feel like were really thrown at you and really maybe caused you to shift your 
like perspective or original idea of how things were going to go? Um, yes, there definitely have been some major challenges. Um, there have definitely been challenges with, I guess, violence against women I've had to deal with at a very, you know, young age, but I'm, I don't really want to share about that necessarily, but I think also I have been dealing with, since I was 15, um, Lyme's disease as well. So just really accepting that there are limitations to what I can do and just like shifting my lifestyle a lot. Um, I think also I've dealt with my entire life, um, imposter syndrome and just how to, I know, I understand that it's not necessarily going to go away, but I guess just how to make it be quiet and just let me live my life and accept the fact that I deserve to be where I'm at and do the work that I do and just really be confident in who I am. Um, yeah. So there's been quite a few, but I think, and it's, every day is different. You know, I take every day at a time and I just, I just do the activities that make me feel alive, I suppose, and really keep me engaged and passionate and moving forward. So yeah, absolutely. Yep. I don't know. Um, well, I feel like that's really powerful, especially how you talked about how obviously there were external challenges, um, that like everyone has in different ways and you had some specific ones. And then you also talked about kind of challenges that your own mind or your own like body presents you. And those I feel like are really hard to overcome. So do you have any like advice for how to maybe overcome imposter syndrome or just dealing with like listening to your body when it's telling you like you need to rest, but you want to do so much? Yeah, of course. Um, I would say number one that applies to both of them. Don't feel guilty if you really just need to take a time out. And I think what's, again, going into both of these that's surprised me over the years is that people do understand. I think I grew up thinking that, okay, this person is not going to let me, that I'm going to face consequences for me not showing up to work and just not being a thousand percent. But I think I've been surprised by how much people do understand. And I think it just takes a lot of courage to just say it, you know, um, in terms of Lyme's disease, actually, I was just thinking about this. I remember, I'm really grateful. I think Mrs. Norman, Miss Clark, Miss, Mrs. Norman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, she let me be a part of the swim team and I never told her, I never really told anyone to be honest about what was going on with my health issues. I just held it very close to my heart and she let me be a part of the swim team and she presented to me at a very like intense time in my life, like a sport that I can do that won't feel impact on my body. Like I loved volleyball. I, but it, the pain I felt even just during tryouts, I was just like, it's just not worth it. I can't do this, but swimming, it was, <laughs> it's an intense sport where you just, you burn so many calories or you just feel it sweating when you come out of the pool. And I felt nothing on my knees and I'm so grateful to her for just, I mean, I never told her explicitly, but just for like understanding my situation, um, because I, I really needed that and she had no idea. And also the fact that, um, 
her mother, God bless her. She actually taught us um, meditation. Um, I think it was called visualization. And that is another advice I would give to young, young women at Gwinnett. Definitely meditate if you can, when at a young age, start as young as possible. Like Miss Mrs. Norman's mom, she would, we would have our workouts, we would do some routines, some hit practices, and at the end of it, she would make us lay on the ground, close our eyes, breathe deeply, and just picture swimming that lap, and I just, that was just such a skill I've taken with me since. It's, I mean, not just visualizing, but I mean, that's important too, but also like breathing deeply, because a lot of time, especially with, I mean, what? I guess any ailment, but especially with imposter syndrome, you are your own worst critic. You're your own worst enemy and it's all in your head. And I think meditation just helps me in particular, just shut those voices up because they don't do anything for me except drag me down and just lets me focus and just come into the zone and come alive. So um, that would be my biggest piece of advice is meditate all capital letters uh bolded (laughs) for sure that's That's fabulous and was it was it mrs heather norman Mm -hmm. okay yeah because i was on swim team too she she just left but like i definitely had like a similar kind of experience with her last year too because like i don't know like i was just it was i mean it was a pandemic so like everyone was having a year but she definitely is like a bit of a rock of a person that you can really just like lean on yeah absolutely just like an older sister motherly yeah (laughs) we have to share this episode with her she would love to hear this yeah she I had her for geometry she's wonderful shout out to to Heather Norman (laughs) um and you mentioned so um Working in environmental sciences as a woman and also as a woman of color, you've talked about your your Peruvian heritage. Um, have that has that ever been a barrier for you? Have you ever felt any kind of discrimination in the workplace, at school? Um, and if so, how have you overcome that? Yes, I have. I've been on the receiving end. I've also been on my last name is white sounding. So I've also just caught people being racist, to be honest, very, to be very blunt. And it's very jarring. I don't really have an answer to this question. Like it's, it feels like someone is like putting a knife in your stomach and just twisting it without them even realizing it. And I feel like, I guess how I deal with these situations I have to think about how I'm going to say this, but I would say if, especially if there's some Gwyneth girls who are worried about this, or if it's already happening and you don't know how to deal with it, I think the best piece of advice I can give you is to really look, keep your eyes open for older women in the workplace or at school. I mean, for me, it was Mrs. Portofino, honestly, like to just have frank conversations and people who just get you. I'm not saying that you have to like give them a letter saying, be my mentor, (laughs) but you could just be like, um, go out to lunch. I mean, at the EPA, there was a Latino. He was was a graphic designer and he was Mexican-American. And he just immediately was like, let's go to lunch, you know, like let's hang out. And I think he was He was just a good person to just voice out what's going on or just things I'm noticing or how uncomfortable I was in certain situations. And he 
he just had advice. So my, so I would recommend just don't be afraid to put yourself out there and, and look for support in that way. If there isn't already a support group in place in your institution, because we want to help, you know, we've been there. <laughs> we have something, we have plenty of things to say about it. Um, I would also put that also remember why you're there, whether it's in school or if it's in the workplace, you're going to hear things, you're going to notice things. And the truth is you have to work five times as harder than your other colleagues. That is just the reality of life. And the truth is you need to remember the big picture of why you're there. You know, for me, it's environmental justice. Sure. Right. Um, also, yeah. Remember why you are there and pick your battles. That is the biggest piece of advice I can give you. I remember an AU professor told me in terms when he was referring to behavioral change and making people have or how to have the sustainability conversation. I think it, it can apply to any conversation, but he said that when approaching very difficult topics like this or anyone that there is a 20% of the population who they don't need to be convinced. They don't need to have the conversation. They immediately just get it. And then there's another 20% who cannot be convinced otherwise. Like they, they're just not gonna hear it. It's not worth your time. So, however, there is a whole 60% of people that are open, that, that are open to have this conversation that can be an ally. I would say focus on that 60%. Do your best to not focus on that 20%. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's the best I can think of. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, that's fabulous advice. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's great. And um, kind of, I think, especially it was nice that you had somebody at Gwynedd to kind of look up to, um, to kind of be, and it's funny that you said, you know, your one of your last professors um, was at Gwynedd. So that's nice. Um that you kind of had somebody look up to at such a young age. And now you are, you know, fast forward, you're um, in a master's program, correct? Um, congratulations. It's fabulous. Um, so you're getting your master's of science in community planning. Yes. Awesome. So can you tell us um, kind of how did you prepare for that? And what is that hopefully going to lead you on to do once you're finished with your program? So the question is, what is community planning or? So, so how did Gwyneth prepare you for that and then what also um are your plans you know once you once you finish with your master's program what what are your future plans oh i see okay awesome so how did okay first part of the question how did when it prepare me for master in community planning okay so the reason i picked this program was for the data analytics because i think the future is really looking at how coding can intersect with urbanism and then intersect with issues related to housing affordability to, um, I guess in my case, uh, climate change and what that looks like in terms of justice. And um, yeah, so how did Gwyneth prepare me for that? This is gonna sound a little ridiculous, but I am I'm kind of convinced that using <laughs> class with Dr. Myers did prepare me for coding because I mean, <laughs> oh my God, I, I always looked forward to the period with Dr. Myers, but um, you know, music, if you really think about it, when you're looking at music theory and the type of details that go into it and what you're trying to produce at the end of it, it's about patterns and you, there's so many different scenarios you have to take into account when looking at music. 
And I apply that to coding because you're kind of doing the same thing. You're writing out a music um, music piece, if you will. You're writing out the directions to get there. You have to think ahead and what, how to play it, right? How to play the code, how to play the piece of song. So I think uh, I have to say the music class or music theory class definitely helped me for data analytics because it is very intense. Um, and also, again, on this more softer skill side, I feel like Gwened, I, mm, we balance or there's this kind of push to do after school activities, challenge us to take courses that we'll need in college. And I, that's amazing. I, I felt very prepared for college. And it also kind of made me develop a curiosity and um, I guess a curiosity for, I guess for my career, but also how to engage with community development. You know, I remember in Diversity Club by Mrs. Gordon, we would go to talks about um, Sudan and the genocide going on there. It's like, okay, we're presented with this life altering event, what do we do about it? So I think when it helped me with that exposure and being able to talk um, and learn about the theories behind that and how that translates into action. And I feel like also, but anyway, like Mrs. Gordon just like exposed to so many different big topics. And I think it's great. To, I feel like community planning is kind of a marriage between engineering and architecture, but in a social science kind of way. So I don't know, I feel like it, I guess I've always had this problem of not being able to make up my mind about which I like more. So I feel like community planning was just like the right one because I can't make up my mind, <laughs> but it's all good. I mean, after I have no idea, like I know my passions, I definitely have a skill set to offer. I feel like if I do end up going government, I'll just go for it a thousand percent and or maybe not. If I end up in another organization, I'm happy to bring my experience to the table for sure. Um, I had this interview for the Congressional Hispanic Caucus um, Fellowship Program. It's called Environmental Innovation through Microsoft. So it happened yesterday. I mean, it could very well not happen, but I hope it happens. <laughs> I think that fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Let's see. <laughs> but nah, I'm. I honestly just want to get my thesis done and just go from there. Um, I'll let you know what happens for sure. Fantastic. Yeah. So, just looking back on your career so far, what are your proudest accomplishments? And then off of that, is there anything that you still want to achieve? <sighs> Hmm. Okay. Again, I come from the, my background has been mainly government. And for some reason we speak in acronyms. So if there's something that I say, just be like, girl, you need to stop. What is that? <laughs> so, so I think my proudest accomplishment. All right. I have to give a huge backstory here. Um, okay. Let's rewind to Oh God, what was even the year? 2018, um, I just finished Peace Corps and I was reuniting with my family and it was amazing. I can't even express the like happiness I felt seeing them after so long. 
And then heartbreak that came after that when you see on the TV what happened in Puerto Rico with um, Hurricane Maria and Irma because Philadelphia is filled with Puerto Ricans. There's such a strong community there. And like, I grew up with them almost. And so it was heartbreaking to see what they were going through. And there is this real surge in taking in employees to help out, especially Spanish speakers, because there's not a lot of Spanish speaking community planners. I'm probably one of the 5%, maybe three. I wouldn't even be surprised if it was lower. Um, so there's a huge representation issue. And so I gave them my CV. I immediately got onboarded and I ended up in Puerto Rico and with the community planning team who are absolutely incredible people, just care so much about their island and just have so much love and resilience. And it was, I, I could cry just thinking about it. And one of the, there was so much going on at the time, I felt in every periphery, it was so visceral, all of the issues that were happening at one time in, in the aftermath of that, of Maria. And so much so that, believe it or not, from my perspective, maybe I'm wrong, I feel like there isn't a lot of opportunity for communities to really voice their concerns or just have input in the recovery process. And I think that is so problematic because it's also like, whose voices are you including? Is it accessible? You know, like the, it's, it's very problematic. And so the thing is when you're a FEMA reservist, you only have 50 weeks in an operation and then you have to move on to the next um, disaster operation. And so one of my, my supervisors is Heather Milton, wonderful lady. She is also in GIS, map making, data, all of that. Um, she kind of took me under her wing and was like, look, I'm leaving, but I really want to push this project because, you know, I really think I really worry with how this is going and whether there's going to be an opportunity for communities to input what's going on and like what they hope for the future amidst all of this. And she's like, okay, here you go. <laughs> like basically just left. And so like, I did believe in her project, but I was like 24, 25 years old. I was like, what the heck am I going to do here? You know? And so she had this idea basically to put a big map um, of a, a municipality and just have people stick post-its on where they live or what, mm, like what damages do they see? Where do they see the health problems occurring? Um, for instance, in reference to water, where is their water contamination? Put it with a sticky note, like locate it. It was meant to be very physical, like firsthand. And I don't know how to describe the situation to you, but it was chaotic. Like there was no way that was happening. You know, like it was just, I, I laugh because I'm horrified. Like it was just, there's no <laughs> way. And so as a result, I just kind of had to take a step back with my friend Adriana because she was also being supervised by Heather. And we're like, okay, how are we going to do this? And so we looked at the overarching goal, which was to get community concerns and by municipality in Puerto Rico for the record, there are 78. So how do we get 78 um, community inputs, we call it about, you know, recovery. And so how it turned out, we felt that the most realistic way to do this was through a three question. Um, I don't think it's a survey let's call it a worksheet. And so these worksheets, um, they have three questions, which is, how would you like to see your community improve? The second question was, how, what health concerns do you see? It can be hurricane or not hurricane related. And what are the safety concerns that, as well? 
And so on the back of this worksheet was the map. So we kept the wishes together, kind of, um, for people to locate if they want. Um, and so then the idea was, um, so in the event of a disaster, there is recovery centers. So for instance, like what happened with Hurricane Ida, people go and went to um, Montgomery County Community College to get like loans to for repairing their house or loans for their business or religious services or to reunite with their families. Um, and these recovery centers can be in the form of a community college, can be a school, it can be uh, a church, it could be a sports stadium in one case down in the South. So in any case, we distributed these surveys to all of the recovery centers that were still open a year later. And the idea was for when people came in to seek services that they would just write um, or answer the worksheet while they're waiting in line for however long they were waiting in line. And so I think what I was told was that people who were older or just had some literacy issues that they were asked like, what do you, what do you think? And then the person would write it for them. It was in general, very well received. And so, so this was distributed a year after the storm for about six weeks from February to let's say March, um, 2018 to 2019. And I, Megan, Aaron, I was not anticipating anything to come out of this. I really wasn't. But what ended up happening, there was 9,000 some responses or close to 10,000. That's amazing. Right? So <laughs> I was like, I was floored. I was completely floored. I was like, I was not anticipating how am I going to do this? Because just to even implement that, it took so much like bureaucratic maneuvering, so many conversations just to get a yes, let alone analyze it. And so I had these 9,000 survey results and um, I had to manually analyze, analyze them. Because the um, they FEMA just didn't have the qualitative software, just didn't want to get it, so I had to do it manually, and it took a year to just like get some sort of result. Um, and yeah, that's what I'm the proudest accomplishment of because it just took so much work to get it to happen. And I think what kept me going for that was the fact that it's so difficult to get such genuine raw insight from a community level like that about a situation like Hurricane Maria. It should not be that way, but it is. And um, so anyway, this whole spreadsheet, it's on a spreadsheet format. It is shareable because um, it's like from people, like it is not generated by the government, it's generated by people. And um, so I just, or not just me, but like the whole team just has it and like it's used um, for different in all sorts of ways. I mean, if anything, it's a baseline and it tells a story of what it was like in 2018 during this time. So I think that is for sure my proudest accomplishment just because of how much work it took to just get that yes. But once I had that yes, I went for it, you know? Um, and again, when you're just like tasked with a with a situation like that, you know, just for me, I just take a step back. I figure out what is realistic here and I just kind of go for it. And if they say no, they say no, at least you're trying. And um, yeah, and just remembering the overarching goal of like how hard it is for that community voice perspective to be included in the process. So very long-winded answer. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I just have to explain because there was so much like nuance to that situation. I just had to, I had to share it. Um, but definitely my proudest accomplishment today. I, I, um, I still use it in my classes and I talk to folks from community planning team there to, um, to this day. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was, wow, it was quite a time, yeah. That's fabulous. And that sounds like a whole lot of work to, yeah. <laughs> to input all of so, this. It was like an odyssey of work. It was, there was just so many twists and turns. You know, I almost wish I kept a diary of like the things that happened. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Did you do that like with just you and your friend who were left in charge or did you have like a team to help you? Oh, man. Megan, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> there's different phases to the story. So at first it was just Adriana and I, or Heather, mm -hmm. Adriana and I. Mm -hmm. Adriana had to leave, unfortunately, at the time when I really needed her qualitative <laughs> research skills. But, you know, she was still texting me and supporting me to get the surveys distributed. Um, that took a whole team. So I had to coordinate with um, the person in charge of the volunteer Oh my God, I'm going to get this acronym wrong. Um, the voluntary, voluntary liaison. It's a fancy acronym for people who are just engaged in community groups. And so through this representative, there were, um, he then put it on a common drive folder to which it was distributed to all, I don't know, 50 recovery centers across the island who happened to be open at the time. Um, and so there was that team. So let's say, 30 people. Um, and then there was also the map work for the back of the worksheet. So that was um, a GIS, uh, Marilia. She helped me with that. Uh, who else? For the analysis part, it was my best, my best friend who's like my, my mother's age. <laughs> she was my coworker. She sat next to me. She's the absolute best, Nancy. She helped me with transcribing all of the responses um, and Cece as well. So yeah, that, it, it was a whole team effort. It was at least 30 some people. Um, but you know, if there's not um, someone there to just manage it, it's going to get lost. You know, that's just how it happens. So there needs to be someone there to just push it forward. Otherwise, it's just going to be another document in a folder. So yeah, that's the thing about projects. <laughs> so um looking back on kind of your your time at Gwynedd um and you know put yourself back in your in your kilt and your and your penny loafers um you know what advice would you give to somebody who wants to kind of do what you do or get into you know helping the environment or you know kind of the wider community um i would say I would definitely, um, that's such a good question. I guess if you really want to work international, you need to learn at least three languages. Like that, at least three. I think we're such at such a disadvantage as Americans, to be honest, like we, like we speak one, you know, and then when you engage and leave the country, you're with people who speak five, you know, so right. I would say learn at least three languages, whatever ones they are, go for it, you know? Um, also, I mean, so, <laughs> there's literal la language learning, but I would say um, advice for people interested in my field, I, I would say learn the language of 
the culture that you're working with, uh, if you want to get into community development, especially, or into planning, um, whether learn who you're working with, who are you working alongside? Who are you engaging with? Like for instance, um, if it's a community group, how do they celebrate holidays? How, what are their values? What, what is their, their lingo? Like, what are their expressions? What's their background? What do they value? Or even if they're architects and engineers, like learn how to speak their language too, so that you're engaged in the conversation. I think a lot of trust building, it comes from just showing up, showing up literally. I mean, I guess virtually in the times we live in. <laughs> but like, you know, it's just showing up. I mean, for instance, also, I don't know how I didn't mention this, but learn what type of culture are they coming from? Are they individualistic like Americans we tend to be? Or are they, in Latin American case, are they communal? Um, you know, we're Latinos, we're very family oriented. We trust relationships. We want to know who we're working with. It's not like the American work culture. Where it's like, okay, we're doing this project. We're going to do this by Friday. It's very different. And it matters like to, um, it makes a huge difference when you take the time to, um, get to know the other person. And yeah, I guess, um, I would say in terms of sustainability, I think what I would advise is the fact that it's such a broad topic and I don't, you don't necessarily have to have an environmental studies degree to be in sustainability. Like if you have an aptitude for math or uh, journalism or uh, I don't know, art, I have no idea, whatever it is, just, you know, go for it and figure out like what are the ways in which that career can be sustainable? Like that's just, that's amazing, you know? Um, so work with, work with yourself, like understand who you are and what you want. Um, and I think the sustainability movement, it's a coalition. It's people from all different backgrounds and coming together and figuring out how to do this. Like, how are we going to handle what's ahead? So um, it takes different skills. It takes different perspectives, but at the same time, I think it also takes people to come eye to eye, you know, meet people where they're at and just move forward. Um, so yeah, I feel like, what else? Um, yeah, I guess that's the main advice. I mean, you can always just text me. I'll call <laughs> <laughs> the conversation <laughs> anytime. But that's what I'd say for someone who's at Gwened, who's kind of grappling with where they want to go in the next direction, but they know they love this type of work, um, I can tell you, I was there, I was confused. I couldn't make decisions, but I'm here to say it'll work out. Just, you know, trust yourself and move forward. Be, take risks, leave, not leave, like um, leave your hometown, get to get engaged. I would say that's the biggest piece of advice. That's how you'll grow. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Do you have any final questions, Megan? Um. Not really, just do you have anything else that like you want to share or you want to make sure that people leave this podcast knowing about either life in general or what you advocate for in your daily job and just anything? Um, I don't know. I guess, yeah, I don't think so. I mean... I also have a tendency to think later, like, oh, I should have said yeah. that. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> 
guess I'll, I'll, it's, it's okay. <laughs> but I mean, like I said, I'm always open to having a conversation with anyone at Gwinnett. It was such a fun time. I always, like I mentioned, my sisters were Mount girls. Whenever we get into conversations, it's always fun to like reminisce on how awesome Gwinnett is. And um, I do... I do just love that about how intimate Quentin is that you can have those relationships with teachers and to each other. And I just think it's such a, it's, it's such a unique thing, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Catherine, for speaking with us and sharing your story. Um, what you do is so important and so inspirational. So I'm sure that listeners will really enjoy learning a little bit more about you and, and what you're up to. And we look forward to what you get up to next. Um, we'll have to have you back on to hear to hear an update on um, what happens after you're done with your master's. So yeah, thank you all uh, for listening. And thank you, Catherine, for being here. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to be here anytime. <laughs>